What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Sacred Giggle Podcast. As always, this is your host, Ashish, aka Shishi, aka Running Out of Nicknames. My guest today is none other than Morgan Page. Whew, man, am I excited to have Morgan on the show. He is an incredibly successful and decorated music producer, DJ, remixer, and musical artist. And he's really done it all over his long career. He's been doing this for well over a decade. He's gotten a couple of Grammy nominations, played all over the world, you know, played the biggest festivals, had Vegas residencies. So he really is just full of wisdom and gems for aspiring music producers, DJs, musicians, and really anybody out there who's trying to make their vision of their dream into a reality and trying to live that dream. I mean, here's a guy who's been doing that for himself in his own way in the music industry for years and years and years. And he's been doing it at a very high level and he's been doing it with a lot of grace and warmth. And that'll really come through in this interview. You'll really feel that from Morgan. He's a very understated, humble guy. And we talk about everything from creativity to how his mindset and process has changed throughout the course of his long career, especially in the last 18 months with COVID and also in the last few years since becoming a new parent. So this is a great podcast for any creatives out there. Really looking forward for you guys to dive into this one. And Morgan and I actually met a few years ago back when I was working in influencer marketing. I was doing artist relations for a company called Harmon, which owns JBL and Harmon Card and a bunch of different audio companies. And that's actually how we met. Morgan came on and did some brand stuff with us. He actually did a production masterclass. He's a guy who really loves to impart his knowledge and wisdom to the next generation. So this podcast in many ways felt like an extension of that. And it was just really great catching up with him. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Morgan Page. <laughs> this is your same house that we were in a couple years ago in California. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Same spot, you know, despite everybody leaving for Austin or whatever they moved to. If there's less people here, great. Right. <laughs> in LA, there's too many people in California. <laughs> Dude, Austin is crazy, man. I feel like everyone all the tech bros from San Francisco moved to Austin. And then like now a bunch of uh, more creative people are also moving there. It's really like blown up right now. Yeah. I think it's a nice alternative to just the Silicon Valley epicenter for everything. Right. It's good to have some other mini Silicon Valleys, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also remember when I was at your, the same house that you're recording this in a couple years ago, I just remember I really liked it because you're close. Obviously, you're still in LA proper, so you can get around places, but you're so far removed from that the craziness of Hollywood and North Hollywood and all that stuff. And it's a great place to raise a family. I think your daughter must be like three now. Is that right? Or yeah, nice, yeah, nice, yeah, exactly. I have a three year old and a four month old. Oh, congrats! I didn't know that. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I just said, why don't we pile on some more chaos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm not busy enough. Bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I mean, yeah, that must have been, she, she was recently had been born your first daughter um, when we were at your place a couple years ago. And I remember you were kind of just like, you were just figuring it all out. You're like in the new parent mode and you had your studio downstairs. And I can tell that it's your studio because 
I feel like there's so much uh, new stuff in there. I don't know, maybe if it's just been reorganized, but like there's a lot of like tech stuff and I feel like you're always tinkering with things like that. So yeah, it's been a deep dive, interestingly, with the pandemic, just sort of getting the video side of things, learning more about cameras, how to operate, just getting into like how to do everything manually and not just rely on auto mode to tell the story. So that's been a cool adventure and learning VJ software like Resolume. So I use that for the oh, visuals amazing. and the live stream. So still doing the live stream, yeah. drinking a different wine every week to focus on. And yeah, so it's like do the live mix in one take and you know, hopefully nothing blows up each week, but usually, you know, you do it one take, no edits, nothing. It's all live every week. Right. Yeah. How is, uh, is, I, I was looking at your tour schedule. I mean, it seems like you're fully back in it. You're like every weekend playing shows back on the road. So do you feel like, and maybe it's too early to kind of make this comparison, but given everything that's happened in the last, you know, 18 or so months, how are you feeling about getting back on the road? Like integrating so you said you're still doing the live streams how is it being back like what's the same what's different yeah what's going on in that world for you i think with live shows you have to have that to be balanced you have to have the the live presence for me it's like that's the reward for the hard work in the studio is i mean some people look at it like a burden to tour and i love it the travel can wear on you but um it's a pretty lean operation i don't have to bring a whole team of people like in the past i've brought a tour manager and a VJ and a photographer. And it's just me. I just fly in, you know, prep and record box, plug in. And it's just gratifying to hear it on a big system. Like it's just not the same hearing music through your sound bar at home or in the kitchen. I mean, that's been a cool angle with pen- the pandemic doing the live stream and that people are you know, dancing in their kitchen in their living room and casting the video feed to their, to their TV, which has been really cool. But you need bass and you need volume and you're not going to get that in your house. So so that's been really gratifying to get that balance. Is it yin and yang of studio time? You're either the studio rat or the road dog. Those are the two modes. And I love both. But if too much of one, too much of a good thing is too much sometimes. Right. So you said that now these days you're just traveling by yourself. What was the motivation for trimming it down and making it leaner? Just costs. And okay. complexity. And if you look at the the bands that are touring right now, if one member of the crew gets COVID, those shows are done for a week minimum. Right. They're two weeks out. And I've heard of that happening with bands right now. And it's it's crazy. One person in a if you have 30 people in your crew in a small touring crew, I mean, I've never had to bring that many people on tour. When we did the 3D walls, we brought that was like a semi truck and a bus, and that was like 10 people, I think. Right, right. Or just a little DJ tour, you know, not like Britney Spears or something. <laughs> so I can't even imagine what it's like to block out a whole tour like that. And then you've got to book everything a year in advance, you know, six months minimum for a hard ticket yeah. tour. So. I've noticed that, I mean, you would definitely have a more intimate perspective on this because you're out there touring and, you know, I'm sure you're meeting other DJs and all that stuff. But the perspective that I seem to be getting on through social media and just from talking to people is that. The music industry is like, and not that we don't need to go down this rabbit hole for sure, because it's totally its own rabbit hole, but the music industry seems like, understandably so, very pro-vaccine and like, let's just like follow the rules because we otherwise we can't do this and we can't tour and we can't bring you guys these shows. And I just find it very interesting because I was in Tulum, Mexico for six months over the pandemic. It was one of the few places that never closed down, like Mexico never had any mandates 
there's never anything still it's, it's completely open no vaccine passport needed and the reason i went down there is because there was like everyone from abiza and mykonos and all these other cities were in tulum trying to dj and throw parties because it was still open i just ran into so many people that were like you know the master bullshit or the vaccine is bullshit and you know i have my own views and i i don't i've learned to just keep them to myself unless somebody asks but like that was the echo chamber there probably because it was self-selecting for people who weren't scared of covid which is why they were going to tulum but i've noticed that uh yeah i've just it's interesting i see you know all these artists saying like get vaccinated get vaccinated and it's just interesting i wonder how much of it is like because do they genuinely believe that or it's just like we have no alternative because of the mandates and things like that. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a pretty minimal sacrifice unless you have like a, a really bad medical condition. I mean, my, my view has been, I'm vaccinated and I have to be with, you know, my wife was pregnant with our second child and we were like, do we get vaccinated? She's pregnant. Is that risky? And there's, you know, like a lock, the Brazilian DJ, he got COVID, his wife got COVID. They almost lost a baby because of it. So it's very clear those kind of decisions are very clear where, you know, if you're healthy, but, or if you have something that is compromising your immune system, like you're pregnant, then you know it was clear what we had to do to get the vaccine early. So, but it was crazy. It was a while before things got settled. We had to wait for hours in line to get the vaccine. And so it was a long process, but even back on the road, it's scary because I was just in Houston and they've had their biggest outbreak of COVID ever. No, not the January spike. So it's far from over, which is a little scary. And I know people are over it, but the disease is not over people. So, so I think I'm, I'm excited to get the booster shot. I'm, I'm ready for it. You know, I've wore a mask for a couple of my last shows that were indoors for like the outdoor Vegas show. I didn't wear a mask. You know, and some people are pissed. Like some fans said, take off your mask. And I'm like, Hey, I have two kids at home that can't be vaccinated. So I don't know. My, my experience though, with getting the vaccine was, I had no reaction other than a sore arm for the first shot. And I've heard of people that have had bad reactions, but every single person I've come into contact with on tour has had COVID every single person. It's insane. Absolutely insane. And some people have had it twice. So the hotspots that were a little scary were Houston and Orlando. And yeah, Orlando was like, yeah, this guy's like, yeah, I know three people that died from it. And I had it twice and it's Florida. People don't care. So, <laughs> So I, I think the simple solution right now is like, I think it's good they're being bullish on the vaccine. And of course, that's going to piss some people off, but you've got AEG and Live Nation all requiring it. I don't think there's really a good alternative to it, you know, unless you're Joe Rogan and you want a horse like medication. Take or or yeah. You saw his video that he posted like a couple of days ago where he was like, yeah. He just like, yeah. So I just, you know, I was fine, but he like rattles off like 10 drugs that I've like never heard of. Yeah, that was funny. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Yeah, just, uh, but it is, right. it's really interesting how it is. I think the most interesting thing is seeing how it's divided people into different camps and people politicizing it. Even here in LA, when you go into Orange County, I remember I was playing a show at Time in Orange County in Costa Mesa, and they were like, oh, you're wearing a mask. You must be from LA. Oh, wow. This was deep in the pandemic, like judging your values based on your choice to wear a mask. Yeah. So that's really weird. Yeah. 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 First of all, we haven't caught up in, and I'll do like an introduction and talk about like how we met that'll happen before the show. But yeah, I mean, I'm just really curious to hear how your, I know this is a big question, but just first thing that comes to mind, like 
How was the pandemic experience for you in terms of making music and being creative? And like, how do you feel now that you're back on tour? Does it feel like just back to business as usual? Does anything feel different? Have you changed your approach to making music or playing music? Yeah, what, what, what's that been like getting back on tour? Back on tour, nothing has changed other than having a little bit of anxiety being that close to people is a little weird after so long where you're with the variant being a threat. So I haven't gotten COVID, thank God, but it's good to be out there. Like it was good to practice every week. I would do the live stream just to make sure I was, you know, feeling a little bit of pressure to do a good mix and getting those, you know, the 10,000 hours in. Keep flexing that muscle, keep exercising it. Like, you know, some DJs just didn't do anything and they didn't have a home set up. And the crazy thing is I've talked to some people in the pandemic and I'm like, what did you do differently? And did you change anything up? And they're like, no, I just did the same thing. And that just blows my mind. Like this was dead time or it could be time to, you know, rebuild your brand or your vision or your outlook on life or learn new skills. And I looked at it like, wow, I've got to take advantage of this time. I mean, mm -hmm. besides making babies, <laughs> right. I was like, let's learn some new skills. And I learned something that I had really no business learning. I mean, learning cinematography, learning video, all the tech behind that. It's just been mind blowing because I've been so focused on like one spoke of the tire, you know, of the bicycle tire, of the wheel. And now I can kind of build the whole wheel, the whole experience, the audio visual experience. And it's so cool. It's like learning how to make stuff look like a movie and make it cinematic and color theory, editing, VJing. There are so many components and like audio is just this one little part that's so important. But now it's like, I feel like I've built these skills where I can go in and, and take more direction in music videos, do more with these remote sets. So we did a lot of filming with drones, which is really cool. It seemed like this nerdy thing that I'd sort of never really paid attention to. And then I was, I went to Vermont on a trip and on a whim, I bought this little mini DJI mini drone and it was, it was mind blowing. That got me into the whole video thing. So that was like this gateway drug. But and the whole idea is that you could have the drone film yourself or work with a very small crew and be able to film DJ sets. I mean, the only way to get those shots would be to get rent a helicopter or a crane. So that was really cool to see. Like it was self-empowering to see like you could, with some very cheap technology, create a really compelling experience that elevated the music and your brand. So it was cool to, to experiment with that. Yeah, I think it's really cool that you process that time in that way to learn new skills because I agree. Like, I, I think, you know, a lot of people also just, I think what you said about sort of reorienting your outlook on life and getting into the deeper aspects of analyzing, like, why do I do this? You know, especially if you're a musician and like you're touring a lot and all of a sudden that's taken away from you, looking into other ways that you can satisfy that creative itch. What's interesting with you in my mind is that. You know, you had already built a very successful career as a musician and a producer and DJ for years and years and years. And one thing I do want to get to during this chat is just longevity and sort of any tips that you have on that, because there are a lot of aspiring artists and producers that listen to this. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, like, when I listen to interviews with artists or podcasts or things like that, that are giving advice to aspiring artists, let's say aspiring musicians, I oftentimes hear two seemingly very divergent camps of advice. There's the one camp of people that will say, you know, in today's day and age, in the age of TikTok and social media and everything, you have to be a musician, but you also have to be no business and you have to know how to read a contract and be a videographer and 
there's this big emphasis on growing all these different skills because that's just what's needed now in this day and age, especially with the internet. And then the other camp is like, just focus on making the best music you can. And you know, the, the rest will follow and you'll attract the right people that have the complementary skills. And I oftentimes as a producer myself, who's trying to grow my career and grow my audience and, and all those things, I find myself sometimes like wondering which is the right one, or maybe it's both. Maybe you just have to be like a dope producer and like have those skills. So I'm curious with you, just your thoughts on that and those two sort of camps of advice and where, how that sort of played out for you in your own career. Yeah. Well, I would say it's almost like one of the quick tips is that you shouldn't look at things like this false dichotomy of it's A or B. There's often a C. So with this, I would say it's about your stack of skill sets. So like, instead of knowing everything, trying to be an all-arounder or just being specifically focused on one craft, which I do think it is important to, like with music, start with one. But then to be valuable, you've got to have, let's say, three skills. So let's say you're focused on, you do music, you know, video, and and you're funny and you have a sense of humor and you can you can integrate that or something. It's It's all about the combination, having a unique combination of stack of skills that nobody else has. So I think it has to be unique to you because you've got 60,000 songs coming out on Spotify every day. Everybody is making banging dance music and everything on these. There's no shortage of incredible music, which is, it sounds like a great, it is a great thing, but it's, it makes it harder. You can't just have great music. You've got to have a multidimensional brand that sticks in people's minds. Otherwise you just sort of blend into this stream of content that's coming out every day. So I don't know, you know, it's something I struggle with is there's so many platforms you can be spread very thin. Like we've done some stuff with TikTok where I had to do a video. They'd, they'd pay for a video and you'd have to do one every day for a month. And it was super stressful and it was, it was cool. Like it paid the bills for a little while, but it was like, I did it for the quick tips and it was really awesome to do a development deal like that. But I don't know if I enjoyed that. And I, I want to spend more time. I think you have to do what is sustainable. So find a stack that's unique to you and it has to be sustainable or you'll, you'll burn out. And I talked to DJs that have, they tour for two years and they're like, oh, I'm retired. I'm done. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you haven't even started your career. And I see this all the time. They burn out in two years because they, they blow off. They get on some hot agency that has a lot of power. They get sort of, they, because they're on a good agency, they can get the leverage of that power of talent booking. And then the agency pushes them hard and then it doesn't last. So the real answer is, how are you dividing your energy? And you can divide it very thinly. And if you do it very thinly, then it's not sustainable. So my biggest tip is you've got to create a, uh, build a, a volume of work. So you've got to find process that allows you to build a lot of work to be prolific don't release everything, you know, don't be precious. So build a ton of work and really utilize your unique skills that are good to you. And I think it's, what is it? Rick Rubin says, you know, you don't get credit for doing everything yourself. You don't get mm. extra credit. Yeah, that's powerful. So I think the, your ego will wants to do everything yourself. And I, that's something I kind of learned in the pandemic was out of necessity, I had to learn everything myself because I couldn't have anybody come in the studio. I think one person came in here, one camera guy came in, in one year. And we set up this crazy camera that spun around the studio and that was it. The only person I let in the studio. And then when we did these remote shoots, I had two people. So it was cool how to learn to do it with a, like a very minimal crew, but, but 
you figure out what you what you love to do and figure out what you really hate and what you can't sustain and then you outsource that. Mm. Yeah, and it's such a good tip coming from you because you know, you are really like one of them, at least in my mind as like just as a fan. I mean, just an incredibly sustainable career with a ton of longevity, you know, you've been doing this for 10 plus years and longer than that and if I just think about all the different things that you're doing, like you produce, you DJ, you have two kids, <laughs> you do the quick tips, which I'll link to that in the show notes, but it's an amazing resource for producers with all kinds of different tips on production and mentality and creativity. I know from experience from my the way that we met was through my old job um, and we did some brand stuff together with JBL and I, I saw how seriously you took that, you know, preparing your presentation. So, you know, for you, when you talk about things being sustainable, What was that process like over the years for you figuring out, okay, these are the core five, six, 10 things, whatever it is, I can see myself doing year after year after year. And these are the things that, you know, maybe either I hate them or maybe they're cool, but like, it's not something that I could see myself doing in the long term in a sustainable way. Was that like a trial and error process for you, like over the years? And, and if maybe if you want, if you could give some, maybe like an example or two, of things that did, weren't that for you, like that you're just like, no, nope, I just don't want to do this. Like this is for someone else to do. This is not, this doesn't excite me. I think for me, one of the hardest things is, is finishing tracks. I mean, everybody struggles with that, but it's like, um, after you've heard a song too many times, I'll have to give it out to final mastering and stem mixing and I'll have somebody else do it. But it's funny because they don't always nail it too. And I'm like, well, I could do it better. And then your, your ego takes over again. You're like, Fuck. so <laughs> So I try to get these projects as far as I can where it feels good. And then when it's not fun anymore, I like to bring in fresher ears, either younger ears, like younger collaborators, or people who are just fresh because they haven't heard the song a million times, more experienced mastering engineers. So I think that is good. You know, I've never done my own like release art. I've left that up to other people. That's a really tedious process when you're like searching for what encapsulates the, the album art. I don't love doing that. But I love I love making music. I love playing the shows. I love documenting the creative process and and putting all those tips in one place. That, that's what the whole that's why all the quick tips happened was I, I wrote everything down so I wouldn't forget it selfishly. And then it was like, well, why don't we share this with the world and make it into a book and make it a card deck? But I think it's interesting, like there's always the struggle of if you want to be out there doing it or you want to be teaching it. And like Kashmir has managed to juggle both, which I think is really cool. But you see like successful YouTube channels of guys that they're not touring and they don't really have an artist career, but they have great tutorials that are very valuable. So it's like, do you want to be that guy? And I know guys that have, were professional DJs and all they do is just coach and mentor now, which is cool. I mean, that's great. I'm not going to knock that. But for me, everyone has their own little personal path, a personal journey. But for me, it's like, oh, I got to, I have to make music. I don't feel well if I'm not making music or if I don't have a creative outlet, I'm not happy. So I can't farm it out, you know, like I've, I've worked with on every, every way you could split a collaboration from somebody else doing the majority of the work or for me doing everything, absolutely everything in the track. I've done it so many different ways and I can't phone it in, you know, it's just, just doesn't work. And I've had, I've done the mix show myself and I farmed that out before. And, and it's like, and now it's like, Back to, I had a service that was Noise House. These guys do incredible mix shows for Martin Garrix and Oliver Heldens. You pick out the music and then they put the mix together and then you do their voiceovers. And we did that for a little while. 
And now with the pandemic, I put that on hold and I'm like, well, I really just want to do the mix live, do it myself. It's been so fun. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting balance of what do you want to spend your time doing? And when you have a kid, your time is absolutely compressed and you have way less time to do things. So it better be fun. And, you know, sometimes it's not fun just catching up on social media and having to feel obligated to engage with every single person, but that's part of the job and it doesn't take that long. But I think I know, yeah, to get back to your question though, there, if I'm spending too much time on social media, I'm not happy. And that time yeah. to be better spent creating work that will last, creating assets in the studio, creating copyrights or out there on the road, getting work done. So you have to feel like you're accomplishing something. And I think it's very easy to get into endless scrolling and compare and despair on social media. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much gems, so many gems in there that you just said. And I think like, yeah, just the permission to let yourself focus on what's fun is so huge. And it's something that I, I really feel like I wish was more talked about. And that's why I'm so happy you're saying it because even like the social media thing, right? Like there are kids out there who they love making content, right? And they just like, they love being on TikTok and engaging in the community. And that's genuinely fun for them. And then you see people that can blow up having that kind of a career where it's like they're a content person. Then through that, maybe they start making music. And maybe that person who started as an Instagram star or YouTuber or whatever, maybe they are outsourcing like 90% of the music. And it's like they have a ghost producer or whatever. And that's because like they don't want to sit in front of Ableton and, and do that and actually go through that process because that's not where the joy is for them. And I think one thing that I've been going through being in Tulum and really focusing on DJing and like kind of getting into that culture, because when I was down there, there were a lot of people who are mainly just DJs. Like they might have a release here or there on like an underground label, but you could tell like they're playing like four shows a week and they're just, they're playing these parties. And especially in that kind of like Burning Man-ish community where there's like, a lot of these parties that are like in Mykonos and, and Tulum and things like that, there's a lot of people that their focus is really on the live aspect of it, the DJing, the event production and things like that. And I think something that I've sort of been going through is just trying to f- differentiate between what is fun and also what am I doing just for my ego that I because I think that I need to do it or because other people are doing it or because I, it's, it looks cool on social media, but is actually like not that fun, you know? And it's like, if I actually check in with myself, it's really not that fun. So I think just that permission to let yourself focus on things that are fun. And even the uh, last thing I'll say on that is you mentioned Kashmir. He was on a pod, the EDM prod podcast like a while ago, and I was listening to his episode and I mean, I will say like that guy's like a beast. Like he's just doing so many different things. I actually just saw him this past weekend at Brooklyn Mirage. His fan base is like crazy. They're just like obsessed with him. Like whole production's amazing. But even he was talking about like, he was like, I'm running a business. Like he's like, there's a ton of people like helping me. Like I'm not doing all of this, you know? And he said, he actually said like the, the most important skill he's developed, more important than production or anything is just learning who to hire and how to manage people. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot there, but I, I think the piece about but letting yourself have fun is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And it is funny with I feel like over the years, you know, you have managers that come and go, and and being able to get the most out of your team. I don't know what the science is, how to do it, but I just know that you got to know how to communicate to your team what you like to do, what you don't like to do, and have them help you sort of manage your your energy and your balance. 
Because the biggest, I think the hardest challenge is, you know, every day I wake up and I, I have like a to-do list and I just am all like obsessed with lists and getting stuff done. But the mistake I make is I, I get stuck in the strategizing mode and the list mode. And it's really about taking action. Like stop talking about it. Stop m- making mind maps and charting things out and just, just go and do one thing. Focus on one thing in the studio. And that's the most important thing. You get the most done. And it sounds so basic, but just to be like, today, I'm going to do this one song. I'm not going to focus on everything else. Be able to get a workout in and work on one song. And anything else, it'd be tough to get anything meaningful done. And that's enough, right? Like, it's like, that's totally enough. I feel like if you do that every day for 10 years, like you'll be, you'll be golden. But it's like, I feel like it's such an unsexy like day in a way. It's like, what, that's it? Like, I want to be in the studio for like 12 hours. And it's like, I know for myself, every time I try to do that, I just burn out so quickly. Like, it's just, I actually don't really know any (laughs) producers who actually do that day, day in, day out. I mean, if I can get like three hours in of focus time where my phone is off and the Wi-Fi is off, I feel, I feel happy. I think that's all you need. You know, I think there was a book I was reading where it was, it was daily rituals, Mason Curry's book, where he was talking about how people in history, the best writers will, they'll do, they'll do three hours of concentrated creative work and then take the rest of the day off. Like they'll start in the morning when it's probably easiest because your circadian rhythm and your, your brain is not even fully awake yet. And, and then the rest of the day, do meetings, go on a walk, exercise, but you're not going to have like, it's a fallacy to think that you'll have 12 hours of just pure eureka moments. You probably might even undo some of your work if you're mixing and you've heard it, you've heard it too many times. Yeah, oh, That's yeah. why I number every time I make a change to the song I number it so I can go through A for backups and B so I can revert back to a version because I've probably screwed up the mix and added too many elements or put too many plugins on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've definitely been there too, man. Like, and it's funny the, yeah, just trusting what excited you at the beginning and then just like remembering that that was exciting and not like letting the fact that you've heard it a thousand times make you less excited. And then you make changes and you, you listen back to that old version. You're like, Oh, this was so good. (laughs) Like what the hell did I do to this? Yeah. Well, that's really key because the, the drugs fade, you know, the, the, your goosebumps that you have from a track, which is usually the metric I try to get it's a, it's a high metric. There's no way that lasts after you hear it 500 times, right. you won't get goosebumps in the 500. I mean, maybe if you let it incubate for a couple of years or something, or six months, you come back, but just not how your brain works is your brain gets excited when it's surprised and there's novelty and there's familiarity and novelty coming together. So it's so funny. Yeah. You hear it too many times. And, and it's like, I mean, I have to get my songs remixed for my sets to keep them current, keep them exciting just for me to play them. Cause I've heard them so many times. I can't imagine being a band and playing the same song every set, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I know you saw the, you had a Gareth Emery remix just come out lately, which is really dope by the way. And um, speaking of like the, the novelty, I was going through some of the stuff that you put out this year and you had one track that really stood out to me. And I don't know, I'm curious if you agree but for me, it was like I could hear you in it. Like it had the Morgan Page, like progressive elements to it in a way, more in a melodic way. The, the song was When I'm Right. Oh, nice. And I was yeah. just like, this is dope. Like it was, it had a, a novelty to it that I thought was really cool. So I, I don't know if you felt the same way about that track, but I think like you nailed it. Like just finding that combination of sticking to what makes you you, but then infusing enough novelty where it doesn't just start to get repetitive super important yeah and 
and that kind of that was a cool track because uh, Asia Whitaker, she sang on, uh, she's on the track, and she did "Starving" with Zed and a bunch of others. She and we've done some work in the past, and she had this like almost country twang to it. So that's something I've been doing. It's been fun, and and on the track with lights too that just came out on Tiesto's label, I put pedal steel guitar on that track, and then this one I played guitar. And the really cool thing lately in the studios is, is like I go, well, I'm a producer. I can sing okay. I'm not not a great singer. I'm a okay piano player. I'm, an, I'm a pretty bad guitar player. But you don't have to be like you. You make up this story about your identity, saying like, well, I'm a singer. I'm a producer, and that's my destiny the rest of my life, which is total bullshit. And I kind of went in and I go, well, okay, I can play. I can fumble around. I don't even know what key I'm playing in, or I don't even know what chords I'm playing. But I just I make enough mistakes, and I find these little licks, and it adds character to it because I'm not a great guitar player. And I can play it well enough. I can process it with Melodyne. And Calvin Harris does the same thing. He just chops it up and quantizes it. Because it's live instruments are hard, no doubt. But it's it's just interesting. You can look at yourself and be like, well, am I am I a guitar player? Am I a singer? Well, it doesn't matter. Like Post Malone made an entire career, and he said it himself, just singing with autotune on. That's the only thing he's good at, he said, was singing with autotune. Which is a skill in itself. It's not as simple as people think. Like, you don't just slap autotune on. And it takes work and automation and but yeah anyways so with that track a cool thing was it's been an interesting challenge to be like let's put more instruments in there just enough live instruments to give it a feel that sounds like me because the early records like longest road they had session players on them doing slide guitar and then lissy is not a dance singer so the whole point and i think the reason that that worked was because i didn't go after a typical dance vocalist so i brought an outside sound and an outside artist into a dance music framework. So I think that's where the exciting stuff happens when you're cross pollinating with a couple of different genres. And that's why I think when I'm right, it's kind of cool because it's pop. But there's a little country twang to the way she delivers the vocal. And it's got my guitar playing on there, which adds just a random sort of organic element to it. Yeah. And I think that whole process is only possible because you're not too tied to this identity that I have to be a producer only, or I, or I have to produce only in this genre by these bounds, you know, like a progressive house genre that's, and everything has to be in the box or electronic. And I think, um, yeah, it's just like these limiting beliefs that we can put on ourselves as artists. They can have such pernicious implications because yeah, if you never even allow yourself to imagine what something could sound like, then you'll just box yourself into that. And I actually think that that's in some ways, I don't mean that there's like any conspiracy around this, but I do think like societally in many ways, like that is enforced just because what's the first thing that somebody asks you when they meet you is like, what do you do? And you have to learn to have an answer to that. And, you know, maybe the truth of that is like, oh, I spend 10,000 hours like learning how to get good at singing autotune, but you just know me as Post Malone. You know, it's like, yeah. and the, the, that's like kind of the the process that I think a lot of artists go through. And I've also been experimenting because I I grew up playing guitar and I kind of put it down for many years to get good at production. And I've been playing guitar again and like literally just like relearning Stairway the Stairway to Heaven solo and like all these classic rock records that I used to love. And then trying to figure out how I can like put a little blues riff on some beat that I made or something like that. And it's just totally opens up the palette. And I I actually think that what you said about combining already recognizable things that work is how so much great art is made. And that's how innovation happens, I think, especially with yeah. music. So, You know what's weird is with the guitar stuff, 
you know, at Hard Rock Hotel, you can borrow a guitar at the hotel and they give you a little headphone amp and a little pedal board to play with, which is really cool. Oh, amazing. But it's weird. The guy, when I, I remember every time I, I've borrowed a guitar and I've done this when I stay at the Hard Rock, they always say like, well, how many years have you played guitar? I thought it was such a strange question. Like, it's like there's this assumption that you are a, you're like a born guitar player or you just, you spent 10 years, so you must just love guitar. Like that you have to put this endless amount of labor into one instrument. Just it's like a very old way of thinking. I thought it was just such a it is it's like small talk they were asking, but I was like, that's so weird. Like, who cares how long I've played guitar? Like I'm 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 not a good guitar player, but it's just fun to to mess around with it and to use it to elevate your craft. But I think it is interesting, like back to an earlier question you had where it's like you need there are lanes and there are guardrails, and it is important to have these sort of get good in different areas, but maybe you're picking as long as you stay on the freeway and don't get in the weeds, you know, like pick like two or three lanes. You don't have to stay in your one lane your whole life with your music. But I see that happen. People say, they just say, I'm a guitar player and I'm going to do this the rest of my life and I'm going to be a virtuoso. And then they never get any songs done or something. You know, it's, it's so interesting. Like this fallacy of you've got to master the instrument. Like what is, what is mastery? Right. Right. How would you, you know, <laughs> like when have you mastered an instrument? Yeah. That's a, such a great question. Is it like, you just, once you hit the 10,000th hour, you like, you get your mastery, like certificate or something like it's, I think that's a, that like thing you said about, I'm going to be this great guitar virtuoso. I understand the fantasy because it's a very, like, in some ways it's like kind of narcissistic. It's a very like me based thing. Whereas I would venture to guess that when you played that guitar on that song, you weren't doing that because like you wanted to like be good at guitar. Like you were doing that because you felt like that's what the song needed or, or that that would help the song. And, and like, yeah, I think mastery is an interesting term in art specifically because it's so subjective. And also because in my opinion, like the point of art is to inspire some sort of emotion. It's not necessarily to be, you can't be the best, you know, like I'm, I'm reading a book actually right now called the infinite game by Simon Sinek. He's a, a business author. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the book is like changing my life. It's amazing. Everybody on earth should read it, but it's basically, he's talking about how, you know, there's finite games and there's infinite games. And in finite games, there are clear winners and losers. There's a time period. So like an example of a finite game is sports, right? Like in sports, it's like one team wins the championship. There's one player who has the most points. It's like easy to see who's better than who. But then he talks about in business and generally in life, and I would also say in art, you're playing an infinite game. There might be winners and losers in a time period, like in a quarter, if you you know reach your sales numbers, you might consider that a win. But ultimately, it, the game goes on forever. And he says that the goal should be to build a, a business that can survive in an infinite game rather than a business that's short-sighted. And you know, again, the book is more so about business and building a business, but I think it so applies to music and especially having longevity like you've had in your career where it's not about like whether you get a hit record this year or you're, you beat this person or whatever. It's just like, can I like sustainably do this on and on and on for years and years and years to come? Yeah. I, like I always say, you got to fall in love with the rewards, not the side effects of it. I mean, it's, you got to fall in love with the process, not the, not like the money that comes, but you got to love making music because it's all hard. It's all hard work. It's like, choose your hard, you know, but it, it is interesting. Yeah. If you like with instruments, if you want to be a master at it, is that like playing 
128th notes, you know, like, is it playing as fast as possible or playing as on time as possible? Like when have you won? And to me, it's like you, you, it's important to kind of define that in your career. It's if you've won, I mean, winning in my type of career, it is, it's selling out shows. It's having good streaming numbers, but it's like, then again, you get into the details of like, let's say you, you're an incredible, you're post Malone level and you have a billion streams. That's not winning for him because a ton of other pop artists have had a billion streams. Right. Right. You know, uh, Khalid just posted he has 7 billion streams and you get one of those like silver bowls for every billion streams you get. Right. So right. is that winning that you can, you know, eat cereal out of your Spotify dish that you get <laughs> like the trophy? Is that the end reward? I mean, I think the reward is being able to do it to make a living and make a comfortable living from it. Which is so subjective again, you know, like it applies to, and I'm sure it changes throughout life. Like, I guess I'm curious with you, you've been doing this as a career for years and years and years and years, you know, now you have a family, I would imagine it's, does it have a different texture to it? Like in terms of like what you consider like a comfortable living now versus when you were, you know, maybe in your, in your early twenties, for example. It's funny when I think about how long I've done it and it's absurd and it's almost a little scary when you start to think about like, Oh, I'm going to need to pay for college, my kid's college with DJing money. Like it's, I hope that can last and hope that work. I mean, it's so far off in the future, but it's, it's crazy. It's like, how long do you do that for? Do you pivot and go into scoring or so I try not to think about that too much because it's daunting, but um, yeah, it's, it's a crazy process. There is a different texture to it now where I feel like as a parent, I have a little more, I feel like I have a little more purpose in the world in terms of it's very clear what I need to spend most of my time on, not just music. You know, it's like, I've got, two human beings to take care of that are super needy. And uh, it's way harder than I thought. Parents show you the curated highlight reel. It is way harder than a career in music, way harder than building a business. No one will tell you that. Or if they, they tell you it, maybe it's people see it through their nieces and nephews and stuff. And you see like a taste of it, but um, you don't know until you're in it. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I just, I like to be honest about it too. And I don't think a lot of people are, I don't think a lot of parents are honest though. But it's such a crazy experience, you know, I feel like it's, but it's given me new importance for sure. Yeah. Talk about that. Like, can you elaborate on what you mean by the new importance? Is it just that all of a sudden now, like this career that you put so much into is like just obviously second to your children or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it changes your priorities. And well, I always talk to my wife about how, like, if you don't have kids, were you just going to go to like fancy dinners the rest of your life and travel? I mean, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> it sounds good now, but, but like that gets old. It, it all gets old after a while. And, and it's really weird. You can take, even if you have sold out tours, shows, amazing residencies, everything good you will take for granted at some point, which is weird. I had this residency at the Wynn for three years and it was, it was so awesome. And it paid, I was getting paid more than I should have been paid. And, and it was awesome. And there's all these incredible restaurants. And then after a while, you kind of get, used to that and you get bored and it's like it's so weird it's so weird to me because i love djing i would almost do it for free but when it's good when it's bad it sucks you know if the crowd's not with you it's not fun but when it's good it's the best job in the world and it's usually pretty good but i think it's funny you you habituate and you get used to anything so you've got to keep give yourself a variety you've got to keep challenging yourself and if it's too easy you'll get bored and I think that that is the thing that happened in Vegas. It got a little too easy for some DJs and everyone's fees got cut 
like in half if they were even asked to come back to residencies. You're talking about post COVID or? Yeah, pre COVID, okay. a lot of the DJs were not asked back to residencies or their fees were a third or half of what they used to be. I remember chain smokers telling me that they're like, yeah, it's too easy for most guys. Like there was guys getting paid crazy money who didn't have big records. They weren't streaming much. They weren't selling tickets. And it was too easy for some of these guys. They just had a good agency or a good manager. And uh, <laughs> just so funny. Now you've got to do it all. You've really got to have the songs that resonate. You got to sell tickets. You got to be engaged on social media and have a presence and top of mind awareness be personable and offer something valuable to people. Do you still feel like, so of all those things that you just listed, right? Like the songs, the selling tickets, do you feel like, especially compared to let's compare it to when you were starting out, do you still feel like the music is the root of all of it? Or do you feel like it is possible? And maybe there's examples, not that we have to name names of people who like are just doing it on the strength of these other aspects or do you feel like, I mean, I'm just kind of putting myself in the shoes. Of, I mean, I guess my own shoes, but the shoes of an aspiring producer DJ who's like, yeah, that's where I want to get to. I want to be playing these festivals and residencies. What do I focus on? Cause I, there's just like a million pieces of advice and things, you know, that I think I need to do. So I think it's building original content. The music is the lifeblood of it. And like, I always notice if I'm touring and I'm playing a show and it feels stale it's because I haven't changed enough of the music I play on my set. And it's because I've gotten lazy and I haven't done enough new edits and mashups and gone in and, you know, done cool stuff with tempo automation or effects, or like ways to keep the set fresh and different. And it's always like, oh, you got to do the work every day and, and, and make it interesting. But it gets stale because you let it get stale. So I think you've got to you're able to have a sustainable career in music if you love the process of, of making music because you're willing to put in those hours for the hard, you know, it's like, it's like weightlifting. Like, I don't know how guys do that, how they can sustainably build muscle and, and do, like, you're super in shape. I don't know how everyone does like the, the amount of pushups every day. For me, all that energy goes into the music and the business, but it's like, God, there's only, there's a finite amount of bandwidth and energy each day and mental grit where you can direct that energy. So it's so tricky. I think it has to fall back onto something you would do if you were if you were sick. Let's say you had COVID, you had fever. What would you be able to do in a compromised state? And I would probably be able to do music. It wouldn't be very fun. I know Ingrosso got had COVID. He had a fever for three months. What? Three months? Which is insane. That's, that's insane. crazy. I never even I heard mean, about that. That's like, that's what he said. I mean, that's a pretty extreme case. But I think, what would you do? In a really yeah stressful scenario of you're not because you're not you have to be able to show up every day and it has to if it doesn't feel like work obviously it's easier. Yeah. So how do you feel like you know going back to being a parent? I mean, I would imagine that totally changes your day to day in a, in a sense. And you know now you have this this thing your your children that's the most important thing. How do you feel like that's affected your creative workflow? Do you, has it changed the way that you approach making music? Maybe like having less time or like needing to be more efficient in some ways or, or even just your approach to creativity at all? It's been really tough because you've got to be totally present. And then your kids know when you're multitasking mm. and they look at you and they get upset. Even the four month old, she looks at me and she knows like, I know you're scrolling through Instagram right now, like replying to DMs. <laughs> Like pay attention to me, look at me, like eye contact. 
So right. it's interesting because the video thing has been fun where I can, I've been able to learn the video stuff, keep an eye on them and kind of be present and learn photography, but he can't do audio. You can't do studio stuff with kids around. It just doesn't work because they're so noisy. That is the biggest revelation was, holy shit, they are just constant soundtrack of noise. Not just crying, just every noise possible. So it's it's very, very difficult to to multitask that way. But yeah, and you have to be laser focused with your energy. The bottom line is you have less time, less creative time, which is unfortunate. But that is the sacrifice. And that is, I mean, my opinions are a little biased because of pandemic and it's been much more intense being a parent the pandemic and i mean thankfully i have uh the three-year-old is in preschool so she's that's still good but it is you basically have to find these other pockets of time so you know i have a little chunk in the morning i've got a little chunk in the afternoon to work out and then i have a little post-dinner night shift that i do and that's it and you you only have so many hours in the day and you can't you know i, I used to stay up all night making music and that routine went away a long time ago 10 years ago, but now it's it's easier. It's better to get up early work, do your best creative work in the morning, do a little at night rather than staying up till 2 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that for myself too. I, I definitely think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about fantasies and things that we romanticize. And I definitely feel like the idea of like the artist at four in the morning is kind of a romanticized thing. I mean, I think Dead Mouse actually famously has talked about how like he like I don't know if he still does this, but I know that he said in previous interviews like there's this window at four in the morning when like you just get so creative, and I think that is like a fantasized thing, especially because you know if you are lucky enough to be able to do it and sustain it, then like you don't have to go to a job in the morning, so it's like you can do it. But I've noticed for myself too, maybe it's something to do with the circadian rhythms or something. But absolutely, if I can just get to bed, if I can just discipline myself to go to bed on time and wake up at six. Like I'm just flying through Ableton, you yeah. know, it's like, because nobody's even awake. Like there's nothing, I don't know. There's no emails that I have to check or anything. And then it's like 9am. I'm like, I got, I've already like finished my work. If, if I do nothing the rest of the day, like it was a good day. Cause I just like got those hours in. Yeah. If you can like ignore your phone, like I've, I always lapse on this, but if you can get up even an hour shifting your day by an hour, you may finish a whole song you would have never done just by shifting your schedule to be up an hour earlier. And I'm not a morning person never have been but um there's something about it like you you start with that momentum and the rest of the day is much easier but you know i was up late with the baby last night so i started my day at 8 30 today <laughs> so so i know i'm already starting at a dis- big disadvantage that'll change the entire momentum of the day but it, you would think it would be multiple hours but it's but even just a half hour or one hour shift in that start and maybe not going into social media early in the day because that gets your brain wired in a whole different mode dude it's a hundred percent and it's so addicting once you get into that habit i'll just admit i'm currently in that habit and i I have been in phases in my life where i'm very disciplined about not checking social media or i won't even have it on my phone i'll just download it when i need to post stuff or whatever but lately i've been in that habit and you're totally right man like there's something there's got to be some neuroscience research about like how it just puts you into this beta brainwave state and then you're just you're not able to deeply focus on things. Yeah. You're, you're task switching. You're being reactive to like, oh, this person said this. This person commented on my profile. Like, fuck this guy. You know, it's you're already there and you haven't even started your day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You're already in that place. Compromised place. Yeah. There's a great book. I think we might have even talked about this a while ago called Deep Work by Cal Newport. 
And he talks about how the most in-demand skill in the next generation is going to be the ability to focus. Like just to sit down and focus on one thing because so few people can do it because we're all just being trained to have ADD by social media. And I think especially with music, it's so important. I mean, sometimes I find myself if when I'm really loving what I'm working on, I'll just like indulgently listen to it over and over again, like on a loop instead of just being like, okay, what's the next thing I need to actually do though, to like move this along, you know? So, and it's scary because that's like a counter where if you hear it too many times, you're losing the opportunity to improve it. Right. More. Right. <laughs> I mean, right, it's right. tough though. I always wonder like when I road test stuff, I just pull up a Dropbox link, listen to it in the car and okay. Okay. That's too many times. I've heard it three times. That's enough. Cause that's going to get, uh, I'm going to hear that out in the road and I'm going to have to like finalize the mix. And then it sucks later on. If you're like, you regret any mix decisions you made once you hear, once it's out, it's out <laughs> and you got to be happy with it. You got to make peace with it. You almost have to kind of, like no work is ever finished. It just is abandoned, but you just get it as far as you can. Yeah. Rick Rubin had a, uh, he has a great podcast as well. And he, he had a, said something on there about, he was talking to someone and he was saying he never listens to his music outside of the studio. Anything that he's working on is like forbidden from listening to it because he's like, first of all, for exactly the reasons you said, it's, he's going to get that familiarity with it. That's going to affect his ability to make the right decision. But also just because there's nothing you can do, right? Like when it, when it's not, when you're on in the studio, there's nothing you can actually do to, to fix it. You're just like listening to it, taking notes. So it's painful sometimes to listen to old stuff too, where like we're, we're putting together a remix album for later this year of other people's remix of my work. And it's just like so painful to go listen to stuff that's five years old, 10 years old. You're like, all right, well let's keep it more recent. Right. <laughs> you gotta like, like it's just one album, but it's like, you can't go back and be nostalgic. I've never been a nostalgic person, just sort of, especially with your own product. Like you make it, you're happy with it. You move on. And right. it's all about what are, you, what are you working on now? Right. I think the closest I've gotten to getting nostalgic is listening to an old track that is not that well produced and just being like, Oh, that's cute. Like he was trying his yeah. best back then. Yeah. Yeah. It can be encouraging, but like, wow, you come a long way. Right. <laughs> right, right. Like, what kick drum are you using in that track? Like, right. couldn't you pick the better kick? Yeah. Right. But there's something beautiful about that too. And I don't know if, yeah, I wonder if I'm curious if you've had this experience where, yeah, maybe you do have a track and you listen back and you as the producer that you are today can hear that and say, damn, I could do that a lot better. But then maybe that track was really popular or it did well. And, you know, I think that's also like, it's interesting to keep that in mind, especially as dance artists or electronic artists, because the mix and the technical side of it is such a big, it's so important in all music, but I think especially in electronic music, just to remember sometimes that ultimately like the average listener is like not listening for that. As they're not as like, wow, well, your EQ work on that is right. <laughs> right, right. They're just like, they just want to feel something. So yeah, I think it, the hardest part is that you get zoomed in and you're like polishing atoms and that is, and you're comparing minute differences and bypassing plugins. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to step back. You got to zoom out and be like, is this contributing to the song? Is this serving the song? And really kick the tires. That's what I have to do. There's so many songs I'm finishing right now. It's like, what's missing? Is there too much? You know, is it done? Yeah, man. That's a, I think that's a good place to, to leave it for today. Um, I do have a question that I ask every guest. So uh, I'm going to ask you that now. And then at the end, if there's anything you want to promote, we can, we can go over that. But the question is, what makes you feel the most free? Most free. I think 
you know, I do a lot of trail running and being outside totally alone is the most free mm. with no people on the top of a mountain somewhere. I love that, man. I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities where you live to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm still here. <laughs> right, right. Amazing, man. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time. This is really a treat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if there, is there anything you want to let, let the people know about people should be on the lookout for? Yeah. Well, see, we're wrapping up the, the quick tips card deck is almost done. We're just finalizing the color palette. I got to send you the latest draft. Oh, please. So yeah. That is done. That's been a, a long project where I've whittled down the 850 tips down to 54. Oh, wow. So that's happening. There's going to be a remix album out later this year. There's a bunch of new singles. So the new one with lights, we just signed the Tiesto's label. There's another single on Tiesto's label coming out later this year, but a lot of new originals are Armada. There's Lost, which Gareth Emery just remixed. And When I'm Right with Sick Individuals. So a lot of music that's been cooking for a while and some stuff we had to hold on to during the pandemic. So lots coming out. We're scheduled out to the end of the year with that. Working on some cool projects with Tesla as well that are top secret, but stay tuned for that. Amazing. (laughs) Not surprised at all. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, people should definitely check out the uh, the remote DJ sets that I've done. So if you look, type in Morgan Page, Mormon Rocks, or Verdugo Mountains, there've been some really cool things with DJI and Black Magic. I love it. Filming stuff on the top of mountaintops. Yeah, amazing, man. So yeah, and anything else? Any people want to see tickets? More information: morgan-page.com, and on socials, I'm just at Morgan Page. Perfect. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes, and uh, yeah, guys, definitely go check out the whole world that Morgan has created. He's obviously an amazing artist, OG, but also, you know, the quick tips is amazing for aspiring producers out there. And I think I did see the, one of your outdoor sets and it was, it was really dope. So I'll I'll link to that as well. Great. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate the time and I will catch you soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks.